Fierce Women Writing is a partner of We Need Diverse Books, a nonprofit that advocates for diversity in children's and young adult publishing at every level. They have many programs that support this mission, including grants, mentorships, and retreats for writers, classroom book giveaways, an app for diverse book recommendations, and others. Learn how you can help them put more books featuring diverse characters into the hands of all children at weneeddiversebooks.org. Welcome to Fierce Women Writing, the podcast where female voices are elevated, creativity is ignited, and writers are inspired. I believe that stories can enlighten, heal, and entertain the reader and the writer. First, the writer has to quiet their doubts long enough to get the words on the page. I'm here to help you put your doubts away and focus on your creativity. Every day I talk to writers and would-be writers who aren't writing. They're not writing because they don't think they're good enough, because they've been rejected, don't have time, or don't know where to start. That's why I created this show, so that you can hear from other writers who want to inspire you to share the stories that only you can tell. I'm Sarah Gallagher. Come write with me. Hey there, fierce writers. Today's guest is Nefertiti Austin. Author and memoirist, Nefertiti Austin writes about the erasure of diverse voices in motherhood. Her memoir, Motherhood So White, a memoir of race, gender, and parenting in America, released in September 2019 and has been shortlisted for literary awards. Austin's writing has appeared in The Washington Post, The Establishment, Modermea.com, Adoptive Families Magazine, Rebel Girls Boundless, and PBS Parents. An alumna of Breadloaf Writers Conference in Vona, her first two novels, Eternity and Abandon, helped usher in the Black romance genre in the mid-1990s. Welcome to the show, Nefertiti. Hi, how are you? Great. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, Thanks for inviting me on your show. I'm excited to be here. Nefertiti, what are the ideal conditions for you to write? Well, the best conditions (laughs) involve my children being at school and uh, so that I can write without someone asking me for something every couple of minutes. And I think the other conditions that I absolutely need is to emotionally feel at peace because even if I have the time and the space to write, if emotionally I am not sort of settled within myself, no writing will happen. Mm, Thank you. Mm -hmm. Why do you write? Writing for me is like breathing. I've had a bunch of different jobs and some of them have been fun and some of them not so much, but I have discovered that writing, it's almost like breathing for me. It's the time when I'm most at peace with myself, the, the time in which I'm at most peace with the world, even in the midst of crazy things happening. And I feel alive and I feel, I think I feel most like myself when I'm writing. I couldn't agree more. (laughs) (laughs) What are your best writing tips? I'm a huge fan of procrastination. I know a lot of writers and a lot of people say, you know, you should write every single day and it should be for a set amount of time. I'm not regimented like that. I Even before I had children, I was not, I'm just not wired that way. And so for me, I write when it makes the most sense for me to write. Again, when I'm feeling emotionally in a space to write, 
is the best time I think a person should write. I think that procrastination is helpful because sometimes you're missing a little something and you can't quite put your finger on it. And if you really kind of let go and go do the dishes or run errands or something, the answer that you're looking for or that piece or that's that unique word that you need, it will come to you when you're doing something else. And so I really just allow the process to kind of dictate what it needs. And the other thing that writers really need is to read. Um, it, it's hard when you're busy, when you have a family. I certainly don't read as much as I used to, but reading is definitely very important because it gives me a sense of what people are talking about. If language changes, like in the adoption community, there is a movement to go away from the use of the term birth parent or birth family to first family, Mm. which is something I didn't know. And I wouldn't have known that except I was reading uh, through some blogs and, and learned that information. So reading definitely is super important. And I think the honesty that writing requires willing to be very honest, especially when you're writing nonfiction. Fiction is a lot easier. It's fun because you can really let go, even though there's a lot of truth in fiction. But when you're writing nonfiction, I know for me, like the first draft of my memoir, I, I held back a lot because I was uncomfortable with being vulnerable. I was uncomfortable with really letting go. And so being okay with just being honest and putting the words on the page. You can delete them if you need to, but being willing to just put it all out there are important things, I think, for the writing process. What are your suggestions for someone trying to overcome a block? Exercise or again, do something totally unrelated to the subject matter because you can force it. And I think as a reader, it will feel inauthentic. And that's the worst. You don't want someone to read it and say, oh, you know, they're phoning it in or this doesn't feel sincere. So if you have a block, I think take a moment. It might be an hour. It could be a couple of days and be kind to yourself. Be okay with I'm stuck. Maybe take some time to figure out what the block is about. Is it fear-based? Are you worried about hurting someone's feelings? Perfectionism is a huge problem for a lot of writers. Are you worried that it's not perfect enough and so you're stuck or you've stopped because you're feeling like you need to measure up to someone else's work? And so I think just taking a beat and checking in with self will help writer's block and If that doesn't work, then just distract yourself, do something else. And then when you return to the page, typically you have fresh eyes, fresher ideas, and I think more comfort in what you're about to do, what you need to do. What about editing and revising tips? You will be editing and editing and editing. So get super comfortable with the editing process. And I think that helps to ease that whole perfectionism that accompanies writers. Just accepting that your work will be edited and the word, the sentences and the words that you think were just amazing and beautiful and fantastic, your editor will draw a line through it and say, we don't need this. And you're like, oh, but I worked so hard. It was so pretty. Oh. And so <laughs> being able to let go. And it's hard because it's your work and it's your everything, your soul, your love you've put into whatever it is. And sometimes you have to be comfortable 
and <laughs> letting it go. So sometimes what I'll do is I'll just put it in another document and save it someplace else if I'm not ready to let it go. But editing is a part of the writing process. And in order to really put something great out into the world, it has to be edited multiple times. I love that idea of holding on to it in a different document until you're ready to let it go, because maybe you can use it later, or at least just come to peace with that piece of the process. Absolutely. And after a while, once you see the finished product, I think, at least for me anyway, I'm able to see, oh, well, I loved this, but I see how it wasn't the best fit for that particular place. And if I can save it and use it elsewhere, I do. Or I will hit delete and I'll say bye-bye. See you next time. Yeah. For our listeners interested in publishing, can you estimate your submission to publication ratio? Oh, my God. (laughs) Hmm. Uh, A whole bunch to like two. Uh, The submissions process is a beast. And it's a numbers game. You cannot get discouraged. Um, So one, you never know how many submissions in addition to your own are being made. So you just assume it's a whole bunch. And I think that accepting that when your work isn't accepted for publication, not to take it personally. And so as you don't set yourself up to get your feelings hurt where you just feel like you can't submit anymore to submit to as many publications as you can and certainly let editors know that you are also submitting, you know, a one piece to multiple places. But those numbers of success are significantly smaller than the number of uh, submissions that you put out into the world. I know when I started writing about race and adoption, I went for a couple of years where I didn't get anything. And then what it did help me do was to refine like my pitch process. And what I did figure out was that my, my pitch was incorrect. They were way too long. Mm. And so once I figured that out, uh, that made a huge difference. But I still, you know, I, I got more no's than yeses. Who are some other women writers that we should be reading right now? It depends on your interest. Like I picked up Furious Hours a couple of weeks ago because I really love Harper Lee. And so I'm curious to see how this particular writer finished a book that Harper was Mm. unable to finish. And Furious Hours is written by a woman. I can't think of her name off the top of my head. And, you know, naturally, Toni Morrison, the book that was published shortly after she passed, she always has great nuggets of things, not just from a literary point of view, but I think as a woman and sort in terms of tapping into that strength to write, to be brave enough to put words on the page. She's certainly someone that she's like a timeless person. You can always get something when you go that direction. And I recently read a very fun story. It's a true story about Doris Payne notorious jewel thief. (laughs) So my interest range, it just depends on what I have an interest in. So I don't, I don't have like a list. Maybe I should create one, but I don't have one. Okay. Um, Where can listeners find you online? I have an Instagram page. So I'm at, I am Nefertiti Austin. That's an Instagram and Twitter is Nefertiti Austin. Same with Facebook. 
I think those are sort of the three that I <laughs> rotate through. So that's a job in and of itself, just kind of keeping up with all of things that happen that people post. Fierce Women Writing is a partner of Terra Preta Review, which exists to unearth phenomenal writing and art by folks at all stages of their careers. Terra Preta is drawn to writing and art that grows from the trash heap of life, and they're especially interested in work by members of marginalized communities. To read their first issue, and to submit work for consideration, visit terrapretareview.org. Thank you so much for sharing insights about your writing process with our listeners. Would you read some of your work for us now? Oh, sure. I'm going to read a section that sort of speaks to the heart of the title of the book and also how it was that I ultimately went from ranting about racism and parenting and in publishing to actually putting a coherent idea out into the world. And so by this time, my son and I have been matched and he's probably three, I think. And so one of my favorite things to do then and now ever since I was a little kid is to go to the library. With my sweet boy in tow, we went to the library. Excuse me, are there any books in this building by or for Black mothers? The research librarian pursed his lips. That's a good question. He clicked and clicked computer keys and wrote down two names, Yvonne Benoit and Rebecca Walker. Anything else? No, I'm sorry. His cheeks reddened with embarrassment. Of course, I already knew the answer. My journey to motherhood as a black woman was not part of mainstream culture's idea of motherhood, and thus there would be no funny or ballsy mommy books written by black mothers on the shelf. Our absence from literature and primetime media prevented us, as Kimberly Sells Allers described in her New York Times article, Hollywood to black mothers, stay home from being seen as thinkers in this mommy movement, women with an important perspective in shaping the future of, say, maternity leave and childcare issues. If we could get past our two Americas with white mothers in one corner and black mothers in the other, mainstream culture would see more similarities than differences. Everyone knew at least one woman who experienced an oops pregnancy or struggled with whether God intended her to have children naturally. This ongoing polarization of black motherhood and white motherhood exacerbated a trust problem that made becoming allies with white feminists whose interests remain gender-centered and short on racial issues difficult. As long as the default definition of mother in America meant white woman, not only would the status quo remain, but white mothers of black boys would have no point of reference when their sons found themselves on the wrong side of a police baton. No worries, I'm used to it. I willed August over to the kids' section to play with puppets and trains. Figuring Beverly Hills was the wrong neighborhood to find what I was looking for, I went to the black bookstore, then to the internet, and finally braved a big box store looking for books on how to handle marginalization. I came away empty-handed. Motherhood was cliquish, with tried-and-true recipes for white people, but nothing for single, adoptive black mothers. Early on, I had assumed it would be easy to find culturally relevant information about Black people who adopted. I wanted to know what happened when a Black woman went outside her community to adopt a child she did not know. 
I needed specific advice on how to handle the social and emotional consequences of being a single mother in a country where the term single mother was called for black welfare mother. This trope was used from presidential candidate Governor Ronald Reagan to President Clinton and later to President Trump, who approved campaign ads asserting that black single mothers were siphoning millions of dollars from taxpaying red-white citizens. So I turned to the media, hoping to catch a glimpse of myself. Movies like Knocked Up, Baby Mama, and Stepmom, among others, all featured white women. These mainstream images of white single motherhood celebrated oops pregnancies, surrogates, sperm banks, and stepmoms, and empowered white women to choose their own path to parenthood. I didn't bother going to see these films. I did not need another reminder of what white motherhood looked like. Six months into the parenting gig, I was getting used to operating with little to no sleep, but I was still on the hunt for something that came close to reflecting my story. Curating information was my superpower. I should have had no trouble tapping the well of parenting resources that existed in the universe. Boy, was I surprised to learn that my quest for narratives about black mothers would be like looking for a needle in a haystack, but the white woman's story would be told over and over paving the way for her christening as badass for becoming a single mother by choice. What about my badass decision for pursuing adoption on my own? Didn't that warrant a book or romantic comedy or at the very least an interesting, diverse perspective on motherhood? While Black adoption was common in my community, I was an outlier for wanting to adopt a child I did not know. I was also an outlier among whites for defying stereotypes around single Black motherhood but none of this was in writing. When you can't find an experience reflected in art or literature or film, it's hard to believe that it even exists. And yet I was real, and so was August. A search for single mothers on the small screen led me to 1992 when Murphy Brown, a fictional white woman, earned feminist accolades for going against the status quo. During season four of the sitcom Murphy Brown, young women my age witnessed the final change in social mores regarding unwed pregnant women. Women were encouraged to spend less time trying to get men to make honest women out of them and more time on personal fulfillment. Women were advised to expect more from intimate relationships, which was in direct opposition to what their mothers had accepted. This conscious uncoupling of marriage being the only path to fulfillment delayed marriage and childbirth for decades, giving women time to catch up with men economically, socially, and politically. As a divorce investigative reporter at the top of her game, Murphy Brown epitomized those gains and continued to push the envelope of motherhood after learning she was pregnant. The character didn't have a moral dilemma regarding her oops pregnancy as her choice boiled down to whether she would co-parent or be a single mother. Murphy opted for single motherhood, reinforcing the idea that motherhood was not synonymous with marriage or two parents. This fictional character's decision to go it alone prompted major backlash from the 1992 vice presidential candidate, Senator Dan Quayle. In a family value speech, Quayle famously turned a personal issue into a political one when he said, primetime TV has Murphy Brown, a character who supposedly epitomizes today's intelligent, highly paid professional woman, mocking the importance of fathers by bearing a child alone and calling it another lifestyle choice. Quell's comment polarized America and positioned single mothers as the antithesis of conservative moral values. Meanwhile, feminists embraced Murphy Brown as a hero. According to Sarah McLanahan's The Consequences of Single Motherhood, she was symbolic of the moral right of women to pursue careers and raise children on their own. 
Murphy's choice reflected the lives of many working single mothers who deserve to be included in the parenting paradigm as one type of family configuration. However, while I celebrated the strides of the single mother, I was quick to note that Murphy Brown, the purveyor of modern single motherhood, was unsurprisingly white. Her triumphant stance for lifestyle choices did not shape my idea of motherhood. I continued to wonder, who would tell my story? My grandmother's and black television mom, Claire Huxtable from The Cosby Show, had already stamped an indelible picture of what it was supposed to mean to be a mother for me. I heard Julia was groundbreaking with its widowed, single black professional mother, but 1968 was before my time, and there had been no reruns of the show during my formative years. When I was a young adult in the 1990s, black television loosened up a little and offered diversity among black family situation comedies. The Parkers featured a single black mother, and Sister Sister showed a professional adoptive mother. Both single black mothers were looking for a man, not making a political statement about being a single mother by choice. These images were close, but did not fully match the mother I wanted to become. The closest black women came to celebrating single motherhood in the media was Cheryl Pepsi Riley's 1988 powerful anthem, Thanks for My Child. Riley sang about a woman suddenly left to parent a baby alone. The song was not just for single black mothers, nor was it a glorification of motherhood outside of wedlock. Rather, it was a message of strength for all single mothers to remember that their baby, however he came, was a blessing. The song was a huge hit on black radio and even peaked at number 32 on Billboard magazine's Hot 100 list and should have led to the dismantling of the myth of the black welfare mother. If white feminists were aware of Riley's song, it could have been a bridge to unite mothers against our white male-dominated society. But because black mothers' struggles were invisible or negatively stereotyped, white feminists missed an opportunity to see how racism and discrimination in employment and housing for situations where poor women of color became single mothers, not as a lifestyle choice, but out of necessity. Black women's marriages and partnerships were disrupted by incarceration, premature death, and drug abuse, leaving these communities run by mothers and grandmothers. This was in stark contrast to the universalized experience of white middle-class women who had the option of staying home to raise their children, as described by Bonnie Thornton Dill in Feminism, Race, and the Politics of Family Values. These separate but unequal designations in motherhood continued in the media and the real world. I really appreciate you sharing your wisdom and writing with us today. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you for having me. I hope that more women will write their stories or fictional stories. I've been so fortunate meeting so many women, especially the last uh, nine months or so, who say, I have a story or I want to write or I'm scared to write or I've kind of put it down and it's not perfect. And I think the, the best thing that any writer can do, but especially women, is to actually do it. Just put it on the page. Now it's time for our writing prompt. I suggest setting a timer for six or eight minutes, putting Nefertiti's writing prompt at the top of your page, and free writing whatever comes to mind. Remember, the important part is keeping your pen moving. You can always edit later. Right now, we just want to write something new and see what happens. Nefertiti has created this writing prompt just for you. What does motherhood look like to you?
I'm Sarah Gallagher, and you've been listening to Fierce Women Writing, the podcast. Join me next Thursday for another episode. Until then, keep writing. Become a supporting member of the podcast with a monthly contribution at FierceWomenWriting.com. Get more writing prompts and engage with other writers on our Instagram page at Fierce Women Writing. Remember, women is spelled with an X. You can also help us reach more writers by sharing this episode with a friend and subscribing, downloading, and reviewing the podcast. Thank you for listening.